Question show time. Your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are across my channel, a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up and I will answer them here. We've got another special guest answerer this week. It's Moya McTeer. You might recognize her name from the Weekly Space Hangout. She uh, has a great channel here on YouTube where she talks about world building and science fiction and exoplanets, and we'll put a link in the show notes. All right, let's get on to the questions. Hiroshi loves you. If some variation of the simulation hypothesis was true, could that be a solution for the Fermi paradox? Aliens just not being simulated? All right, so for those of you who haven't been watching YouTube videos nonstop and run across the simulation hypothesis, the idea is simulations are getting better and better right now, and so it doesn't seem unreasonable that at some point in the future there'll be a simulation that's so good the inhabitants of that simulation don't know that they're being simulated. And if that's possible, maybe they'll make simulations inside their simulation, and eventually the vast majority of living, intelligent entities in the universe will be simulated, which means that for any entity that's asking themselves, am I simulated? The answer is probably yes. Anyway, uh, you know, don't let the existential horror of that thought uh, freak you out. Um, but the question is, can that answer the Fermi paradox? And the answer is, sure, why not, right? I mean, literally, the simulation hypothesis can answer anything. Because essentially, the simulation hypothesis is that it's magic. Um, that we live in the matrix, nothing is real. Anything that the programmers want to have happen in the universe can happen. Don't put aliens, do put aliens, it's all the same thing. But one of the ideas that I kind of like about the simulation hypothesis is maybe we're not the point of the simulation. Maybe we're just an, a side effect that if you go to try to simulate the entire universe right down to the, the hydrogen level and all the interactions of all the particles, then the outcome of that is stars and galaxies and planets and maybe even life on some of those planets. And everything is just simulated, it's all just according to the math. And that the developers of the simulation have no idea that we exist within this simulation and we don't know that we live in a simulation. And so if that's the case, then whatever math rules created us in the simulation would have also created other aliens in the civilization. The bottom line is you'll drive yourself crazy trying to think about this, that until there's some kind of evidence at all, whether or not we're living in a simulation, there's no way to come to an answer. So sure, yeah, the simulation hypothesis, no aliens programmed into this video game, is as perfectly as reasonable as the simulation hypothesis itself, which is impossible to prove or disprove. Cameron Wood. Hey Fraser, I've been an IT student since February, completing a single basic semester course, and I'm about to begin attending a three-year-long bachelor's course. I see a future where all construction and manufacturing is done in space. Any tips on which paths I should take? Last semester and the two semesters all focus on the basics and more general aspects of IT, but later on I will be able to choose which specific classes I want to do to further hone my skills and I'm unsure of what to focus on. I know I won't be working on anything in space anytime soon, but it's a great source of motivation. Well, assuming Jeff Bezos' bold vision for the future of humanity in the solar system is that all manufacturing will eventually be done off Earth, then you're exactly right. Uh, you should be specializing in space-based 3D printing facilities and off-planet power generating production and really uh, solar system engineer, um, mega engineer. That's a good title. Yeah. So, uh, but these jobs don't exist and they probably won't exist for decades. 
at the soonest. So I wouldn't put too much energy in planning that, that far, far future career. But there are definitely lots of jobs that happen right now here on Earth which will lead up into that. Anything in computer science, anything into robotics, anything into machine learning, materials, manufacturing, and of course 3D printing itself is going to be an enormous technology here on Earth first before it starts to work out in space. And there, there are a few companies right now that are already looking at it. There, you know, we've mentioned them in the past. And so you can, you can sort of see that, yeah, in the, in the far, far future, well, not the far, far future, maybe in the few decades, um, we're going to see more and more of that going on. And so if you were really good at what you did, had demonstrated you had a lot of ability, you could probably find yourself working with one of these companies, with Made in Space. Um, but, and, but you'd kind of need to custom perfectly craft your resume for exactly the kind of person that they need. But in the short term, what I would do is I would get involved in the kinds of projects that are related to that. So work on robotics projects, work on 3D printing projects, get really good at those kinds of fundamentals and stay on top of the current technology as it continues to advance. And then look for jobs in 3D printing, look for jobs in aerospace, in advanced materials, things like that, and do what you can now to usher in that future, hopefully the one where we don't have the polluting manufacturing down here on Earth, we have it out in space, and we get to have a nice Gaia green garden world instead. So uh, it sounds exciting, um, but uh, let me know how it goes. Vinish Gopinath. Question. Do magnetic compasses work on Mars? No. If you had a compass, you know, one of the compasses that we have here on Earth that where the, where the little magnetic needle points to magnetic north on planet Earth, if you took one of those to Mars, it would be worthless. It wouldn't point at the Martian North Pole. It would point in whatever is the local magnetic field that is the most strong to wherever you are. And so the magnetic dynamo on Mars shut down about three and a half billion years ago. And so once Mars had cooled down to the point that its internal dynamo shut off, then its total global magnetosphere went away as well. And so there were still lava flows that were sort of putting out um, local regions of magnetically aligned material. And so uh, various spacecraft have gone to Mars and mapped out the magnetosphere of Mars. And so it doesn't have a global magnetosphere, but it still has pockets of magnetic field that are in some cases stronger or in some cases almost zero. And so your compass would align you to wherever your local pocket of um, magnetic field is on the on the surface of Mars. So no, if you had a compass, you're trying to find your way back home, it would be pretty worthless. Jao de Carvajo. Why don't we have amazing high resolution videos from Juno and other probes and rovers? Is it the limitations in the probes or in the capacity of the deep space network? How to overcome these limitations? Well, the limitation obviously isn't in the capability of doing high resolution video. You can absolutely have a HD camera, a 4K camera, an 8K camera go on a spacecraft. They're not that big. They would fit on the spacecraft today, no problem. And it could record insanely high resolution, 60 frames per second video of approaching Jupiter. But as we know, the file sizes for those kinds of, of videos are just, they're monstrous. They're gigabytes long. And 
it's the data speed to be able to transmit the data that you're gathering far away back to Earth, which is the limitation. When you're trying to transmit your files from the distance from here to Jupiter, what is it, like a billion kilometers to get to Jupiter, um, uh, your signal strength uh, weakens and your bandwidth goes down. And even with a gigantic dish here on Earth. And so when people are creating these spacecraft, they're really thinking about how do we get the most amount of valuable data back to Earth so that we can study it. And what looks like valuable data to scientists isn't necessarily valuable data to, uh, to us just wanting to watch some high resolution video of Jupiter, man. Um, you know, they want to see magnetic field strength. They want to see uh, the strength of the solar wind. They want to be able to see the chemical analysis of the various objects that they're going past. And of course, they do want to take pictures and they take the highest resolution pictures that they can afford in both their energy budget, in their weight budget, and in their transmission budget. And for the purposes of a scientist, one photograph that is very well taken with lots of data in it is as useful as a video. In fact, more useful, all depending on the resolution. You know, they want a really nice high resolution image as opposed to a, a lower resolution video. And so that's what spacecraft are specialized on. And we're not going to see anything different for a long time. Now, maybe there's going to be some future where there's a private spacecraft that goes to Jupiter and someone points a video camera out the window and transmits that data back on some private network. So they're not hogging up the deep space network, which is you know, NASA's um, uh, network to be able to receive these files. Then maybe you'll see something like that. But I think it's going to be a long time before we can just see high resolution video. And the other thing is out in space things unfold very slowly. I mean, it takes weeks for Juno to make each pass of Jupiter. And so if you have, you're recording high def video of Jupiter, it would look exactly the same for hour after hour, maybe getting just a tiny little bit bigger, maybe the storms moving a little bit uh, every few minutes as the planet is rotating in front of you. It would be kind of cool, but not worth it to send that much data through the network. So um, these are scientific instruments and they are built with the scientific payload that is most necessary for them to get the scientific goals done. It's funny, with the Juno spacecraft, originally the, the designers didn't even want to put a camera on it. And, and people convinced them that it would be good for public relations and there would actually be some scientific purpose if they put a camera on Juno. And of course, some of the photographs that we've seen from Juno are stunning and have really helped people get very excited about the mission. So maybe video would be cool too, but it just, it's just too bandwidth intensive today. Dustman, what if a black hole got spinning so fast that the disk spread out so much that the density was no longer above the threshold at which light cannot escape. So when you think about a black hole, all black holes are spinning, um, which makes them more complicated. Um, as materials falling into the black hole, the black hole is spinning faster and faster and faster. And as you add more material to the black hole, you're going to be essentially speeding it up its, its rotation speed. And so I can sort of imagine your question. You're thinking like, could the black hole just keep going faster and faster and faster and eventually get so fast that it sort of flattens out and then just tears itself apart and then it's no longer a black hole? And the answer is no. Um, and the reason is actually really cool, um, which is as the black hole rotates faster and faster and faster, it actually starts to 
fall under these sort of relativistic uh, limits. In other words, say the black hole is rotating, I forget the speed, it's about 70% the speed of light. So as the event horizon, as the black hole is turning at closer and closer to the speed of light, it sort of requires more and more mass to make it go faster in the same way that you can never approach the speed of light when you're in a spaceship. And so it eventually this, the, the black hole reaches the maximum rotation speed that it can. And that rotation speed is not fast enough to tear it apart. One of the things that's kind of cool though, as the black hole is spinning faster and faster, is, is its event horizon flattens out. So instead of it being like a sphere, it flattens out into this oblate spheroid. And the, the limit is that the event horizon can never uh, rotate fast enough that it flattens out so that the actual singularity can be revealed. It's this idea of a naked singularity. And the limit is, is that it can spin up, but it can never get to the point that you can actually see the singularity inside the event horizon and it will never tear itself apart. And you can thank Einstein for the reason why. Rexify. If the universe is expanding and will eventually get to a point where we will only see our local neighbors, wouldn't people alive then observe that and think the universe is just that? Could it be the universe is much bigger, but then it just expanded out of our view and we think this is it? We actually live in a very fortunate time in the universe, a time when we can see back to the beginning of the universe, to the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that's the afterglow of the Big Bang that we see everywhere that we look. And right now that is 46 billion light years away from us, um, but we can still see it. And, but over time, as the universe continues to expand and potentially as dark energy continues to accelerate the expansion of the universe, there will be a time in the future, about 100 billion years from now, when all of that material sort of falls over the cosmic horizon and disappears from our perspective. And essentially, anything that wasn't within about 3 million light years of us, so essentially, Triangulum, Andromeda, and about 60 dwarf galaxies, anything that wasn't within that region will be pulled away from our local group and eventually disappear from our perspective. But it will take a long time. Now, will future astronomers think that, that the universe that they see is all there is? Um, and the answer is, is probably, but it wouldn't be impossible for them to figure out that there was something else there. So right now, when you sort of look at space, every cubic centimeter of space, there's about 400 um, photons from the cosmic microwave background, essentially from the birth of the universe, passing through every cubic centimeter right now. And over time, as the universe continues to expand and expand, the number of those photons is going to go down and down and down. And the length of the wavelength of those photons is going to stretch out until they are, like right now they're in the microwave, but eventually they'll get into their meters long and eventually they will be kilometers long, they'll eventually be light years long. And so for any spot in space, you know, you might have a, a single wavelength that is a million uh, light years across, which would be really hard to detect, but it will be there. And so you can imagine some future civilization, some very advanced civilization developing very, very powerful radio dishes very, you know, to detect radio waves at really long stretched wavelengths and they would find the cosmic microwave background radiation stretched very, very long because it will always be there. 
It's just it will be harder and harder to see. And they may even be able to detect the light from galaxies that have been pushed away and have fallen over the cosmic horizon through their really long stretched wavelengths. You know, they're visible light to us today, they'll be infrared in the future, there'll be microwaves, radio waves, and then longer and longer wavelengths of radio waves. And so um, it's, it's kind of hopeful. Um, on the one hand, they, it would have to occur to them to look for it. But if they were highly technological and they did want to look for it, then they could probably find it. Hi, my first ever question. When talking about the Kardashev scale, why is it assumed that civilizations would ultimately use increasingly large Dyson spheres, megastructures, to generate their power needs? It seems that the only method proposed in most theories. Surely the power from antimatter annihilation is the most directly efficient concept. I know it requires a leap in technology to create and store antimatter, but it strikes me as no more of a leap than building a gigantic structure around a star or galaxy. When we think about our increasing use of energy, Every year that goes by, humanity wants to use more and more energy. And if we look at that graph, if we just plot that graph from the, from the earliest times of humanity to now, it's this smooth logarithmic graph that will go on into the future. And you can pretty much predict the moment hundreds of years from now when our energy use will match the total energy output of the sun. And so how do you gather 100% of the output from the sun? You surround the sun in some kind of collecting satellites, which gather up all that energy and turn it into some kind of useful work. Now we don't know what we'll use it for. We don't know how we'll do it, but it seems feasible. No, it seems inevitable that we will eventually want to use up all the energy that comes from the sun. You just do the math. And that's what the future says. Now, obviously you could say, well, yeah, but maybe the future won't be like, like the past 10,000 years of humanity. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe we won't. Maybe some point we'll decide we're not going to use it. But assuming that we will. Um, now you suggested using antimatter. Now the problem with antimatter is that it takes energy to create antimatter. And it's actually a very, um, right now, a very energy inefficient process. We have to have particle accelerators that use a ton of electricity to produce just a few atoms of antimatter that we can then use. Antimatter is difficult to store. Um, you have to be able to store it in some kind of magnetic field so that it doesn't immediately touch something else and annihilate and it's gone. At the best situation, antimatter will be a store of energy. So say you've got, you've got your Dyson sphere rolling, you're producing tons of electricity, you're using that electricity to generate antimatter, and you're, you're containing it in some compact area, in some kind of magnetic bottle, and then you're putting that in your spacecraft and you're using that to fly to another star system. But there are no just reserves of antimatter out there that we can dip into. If there were, we would see them annihilating out there in space. When we look out into space, we see occasional amounts of antimatter where it's being generated in some place, like it's being generated around a black hole or it's being generated near the center of the Milky Way. But, but to actually produce it in a way that we could then use is going to take more energy, and thanks to the laws of thermodynamics, right, then we're going to be able to use it. So, so they're going to work as a two-part thing. Um, the Dyson sphere will, will harness the power of the star to generate the electricity, and then you'll use that electricity or power to create antimatter, which will be your store of energy. And then you'll use that in, in a way, in a compact way. You'll put it in your spaceship, you'll use it to power your city, you'll move it away from the star to places where you need that energy. So just think of antimatter as a battery. Fugal. 
If SpaceX continue to develop the Starship and say it all goes according to plan and by 2022 it's up and running, fully reusable, what do you think the first mega project would be aside from a moon base and a Mars base? Some kind of giant rotating star base in LEO? A giant asteroid capture ship built in orbit? I love how you just like went right past the moon base and the Mars base. The theoretical capability of Starship is such a dramatic change over anything that we have today that the answer to that question is like we don't know. Our imaginations currently are not equipped to know what we would do with a spaceship like Starship. Um, in the very near term, I think what you're going to see, especially if they're in fully reuse mode, they are, they are an order of magnitude cheaper than the current launch systems on the market. The first thing you're going to see is everything that was ever going to launch on anything else will start launching on Starship. And it's going to be inefficient in the beginning. You're going to have a full Starship with like a tiny little payload, some little, because it's still going to cost one tenth the price than it was going to launch on some traditional rocket system. And so we're going to see that probably for five, 10 years where just everything that, that anybody had ever already had in the pipeline to launch will now be launched on Starship. And then you're going to start to see people developing payloads that are designed to utilize Starship in its full capability. So you're going to see instead of say 60 Starlinks going up at a time, you're going to see 250 Starlinks going up at a time in one Starship launch, or you're going to see much larger, much more capable, um, interplanetary spacecraft built for NASA or ESA or things like that launching on Starship. But for the kinds of mega projects that you're envisioning, we're still going to need to know whether those kinds of things are feasible down the road. And right now, I mean, maybe they're going to work or maybe even at one tenth the price to launch them, they aren't going to be effective. And so it's really hard to predict a future beyond extrapolating current launch capabilities and knowing that you'll be able to do them cheaper. Um, you kind of don't know what happens after that. And that's what's kind of amazing about Starship and whatever comes after Starship, a super version of Starship that's even cheaper. Um, we don't know what the future holds. It's really exciting. Chitran Biswas. How will the astronauts be protected when they are or were on the moon from any possible meteorite falling on the site where they're working? So here on Earth, there are tons and tons of micrometeorites slamming into the atmosphere all the time and they're all burning up and we see them as meteors and they're really pretty. Um, but on the moon, there's no atmosphere and so anything that strikes the moon is just going to make it all the way down to the surface and slam into the moon at tens of kilometers per second. And if you get in the way of that, um, that's a bad day. So theoretically, um, there will be very devastating effects from being out on the lunar surface when a micrometeorite or, or something larger slams into you. It'll be lethal. That said, it doesn't happen very often. You know, when we look at the surface of the moon, it is pounded, ground up rock, tens of meters deep from all of those impacts. Those have happened over billions of years, and a billion years is a long time. So it's like a risk and I'm sure it's going to be in the back of every astronaut's mind as they walk out onto the surface of the moon that is this the day that I get hit by a meteorite but the chances are incredibly low and so it's not really going to have that kind of an impact on their day-to-day -day experience and maybe at some point 
there will be a news story of somebody getting hit by a meteorite and it'll make the news, but it's not going to be that common, especially once you get away from the low Earth orbit environment. So around the Earth, there's tons of just bits of metal, like really our space junk rotating, orbiting around the Earth, and that strikes the various spacecraft. But once you get farther and farther away, then it's just the stuff that's floating around in the solar system. Now, there'll probably be some kind of protection, Kevlar, things that the astronauts will wear to give them some level of protection. But if the object is big enough, it'll be lethal and it'll just happen from time to time. And we don't know how often it's going to happen. More tests will be needed, but, but not very often. Giz Grinwas. So a question for the next episode, or maybe here, I want to get into night sky photography. What do I really need to get started? I have a decent camera with a kit lens, but nothing else. What is the first thing I'd need to invest in? All right, good thing that you've got the, uh, the good camera. That's like half the way, half the journey there, assuming you already know how to use it. So what I would recommend is you start with wide field Milky Way photography. And you can use your kit lens, but I probably wouldn't use that. I would probably invest in a lens that's a fixed aperture, something that is a little faster. So I, you know, generally for Canon, Sony, Nikon, you can get like a lens, like a 50 millimeter lens that's fairly fast and they're real, relatively cheap, like around $100. And they'll give you a fairly wide field of view. And then what you want to do is you want to find as dark skies as you can get to and set up your camera, turn your ISO up to something that's very noisy in the sort of 3200 to 6400 range, um, uh, open up the aperture as wide as you can, um, and then you want to do the longest exposure that you can do before the stars start to trail. And you're going to get some really nice wide field views of the Milky Way and then bring them into Photoshop or wherever you do and clean them up and play with the colors. Now we did a whole video about this and there's lots of people that will give you a tutorial on how to do this, but that's sort of the first step that I'm really compressing this down, but, but get a fast lens and, and, sort of practice taking pictures of the Milky Way. Now you're going to get kind of sick of that after a little while, like another picture of the Milky Way. And the next thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get a tracking mount. And so you can still, again, use your existing, use your existing camera, but you can put it on a mount that will track the sky at the speed that the sky is turning, the speed that the Earth is turning. And that'll allow you to go back to your kit lens or get even more like a telephoto lens and zoom in on some specific area that you want to see, some nebula or Andromeda or star clusters or things like that. And you can record a, a very long image at a high magnification and get it without the star trailing. So once you've gone out and you've exhausted this current gear. You've taken lots of pictures of the Milky Way. You've got some shots of some deep sky objects using your tracking mount and maybe a telephoto lens. You've pushed this technique to the max and you're still really enjoying yourself and you want to follow the rabbit hole to see where it goes. Now things get kind of expensive. So the first thing that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get a good telescope and a good mount. And you can spend around, 
you're probably spend, going to be spending about one to two thousand dollars for the telescope and mount combo. Yeah, obviously, you could spend tens of thousands, but that's sort of about where I would I would go. And I recommend, like, say, go talk to the people at Oceanside Photo and Telescope. But what's great is that you can use your existing camera again as your camera for your telescope. It's just that now the telescope is going to track very accurately the the camera lens or the sort of the telescope acts like a big lens for your telescope and then it's that same process then you're going to get kind of um, you're going to reach the limits of what your camera can do as a camera for doing astrophotography and it'll take you a long way then you're going to want to switch out to getting an actual proper astrophotography CCD camera that has much better sensitivity and is really designed for that job. So you can kind of work your way into astrophotography one step at a time. At each point, uh, you're not allowed to pass until you've used your gear and you know the ins and outs and you've been out night after night and you've taken lots of pictures. So don't just gear up and then don't get started. Start with what you've got and then adapt as you go and hopefully a couple of years from now you'll be a fantastic astrophotographer and you will have learned sort of the hard way what's the gear for you and what improvements you can make. But, but good luck and let me know once you've taken some pictures. Oi Snowy. Hi Fraser, Lurker here for many many years. Simple question, probably not an easy answer. How many exoplanets have we observed through multiple means such as Doppler shift, transit, or direct imaging? Not that I'm skeptical, but I'd love to see some confirmations through various methods. Great question, and uh, it is a tough one, so I've brought in an expert, uh, Moya McTeer, who is an exoplanetary researcher. She also is one of our co-hosts on the Weekly Space Hangout, and I met her at the American Astronomical Society in person, and she answered your question. It's totally fair to be skeptical. Uh, that's how science gets done and gets done the right way. Uh, so when you detect an exoplanet for the first time, there's actually a second step to confirm that that exoplanet is a real planet and not just some wonky thing happening in the signal that you used to find the planet. So imagine you found a planet using the transit method. So a planet passed in front of a star, it blocked some of that star's light. We can learn that there's a planet there based on how much light was blocked from the star, but there are other things that could block light, uh, or it could just be some weird funky thing happening with the camera that took the observation. And so to confirm that that's a real planet, we have to actually detect it with another method. So most exoplanets that are confirmed exoplanets on the NASA Exoplanet Archive were uh, discovered, not discovered, but they were studied with multiple methods. If you find something using the transit method, you're going to test that it's actually there using the Doppler method. Probably not direct imaging because that's actually really hard to do for most planets, uh, but Remember that the transit method only tells you how big a planet is, uh, and it's really helpful to learn other things about the planet, like how massive it is, which is what you get if you use the radial velocity method or the Doppler method. Thanks, Moya. That was awesome. Uh, now, I urge you to check out all of Moya's stuff. I'm going to put a bunch of links in the show notes. She's got a YouTube channel. She's got a podcast all about world building and science fiction and the kinds of topics that I'm sure you're going to love. So definitely check that out, and I'm sure Moya will be joining us again for the next season of the Weekly Space Hangout. All right, those are all the questions that I had this week. Thank you, everybody, for sending them in. I always enjoy this. As always, wherever you are, a question pops into your brain. Write it down. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here, and I will see you next week.